When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hey, it's Fatma Sayed, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics. For our first episode of 2022, wow, it's so strange to say that, we're going to do things a little bit differently because Parliament is not back in session yet. They're back January 31st. So this week, we're having an extended conversation that really digs into what me and producer Tiffany Lamb thought was the biggest story of last year. The discovery of more than 1,300 unmarked graves of Indigenous children at former residential school grounds across the country. Now, there hasn't been too much movement from Ottawa on how to account for this colonial legacy, but two major things have happened since. Most recently, in December, the CBC reported that Ottawa released early details of a $40 billion settlement for Indigenous people impacted by the state child welfare system. This is a non-binding agreement, and parties have until the end of March to sign off on it. It sets aside $20 billion for compensation and $20 billion for long-term reform of the on-reserve child welfare system. All eyes are now on the federal government to reveal how exactly they will change this. And then, back in August, Ottawa announced its intention to fill a new interlocutor position to help guide the process of what we do with the unmarked graves moving forward. Do we keep searching and excavating? What will we do with what we'll find? And what does it mean to protect the graves? Today we'll get into what this interlocutor position can do, what else Ottawa has done or not done to right their wrongs so far, and how Indigenous people here on this land are processing all of this. If 2021 was the reckoning, then 2022 has to be about following through. And that's why we're starting the new year with this conversation. Before we start dissecting all of this, a warning. This episode contains some distressing details about death and violence within residential schools. For this conversation, I'm joined by Lena Manifi, producer and co-founder of Ricochet Media. Hi, good morning, Fatma. Riley Yesno, writer and researcher at the Yellowhead Institute. Hi, good morning. And Romeo Saganash, former actual backbencher member of parliament. <laughs> Hi, good to see you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, Lena, you've spent the past year having conversations about what happened. Tell us tell us what you've learned and, and what you've been thinking about. Well, this recent discovery of the mass graves. We can start from there, that it's not a recent discovery. It's been, you know, outlined in Volume 4 of the TRC. It has been talked about for a while. And as I said before, it's it's there's actually discoveries that um, predate this in 2015 and 16 as well. Um, we're using the technology and the GPR that they've done right now. So um, it's a re- conversation we're revisiting for 2021 here, and it is one that we needed to have a long time ago. I've probably been in the presence and around people telling their stories, probably over um, 50 different residential school survivors, maybe up to 60. And they all stick with you. Each person is is very individual with their experience and what the stories they've shared. But I'd say the... Um, the closest one to heart is hearing from an elder about their experiences, you know, witnessing death and um, finding bodies uh, as a child and being denied that they didn't see what they saw and being punished for it. These are some of the really hard stories we have to kind of uh, get into and that people don't know about. Yeah. R- Romeo, what has stuck with you over the past year as, you know, the conversation has sort of restarted, but on some broader scale? Well, uh, needless to say how triggering it was for me, given my personal story with my own siblings, uh, 13 of the 14 siblings attended residential school. Unfortunately, the first one that left in 1954 before even I was even born, uh, died the first year at the age of five. And we never knew where uh, what had happened and so on. So it was triggering in that sense. But you... You use the the expression, the biggest story of 2021. I would say, from our perspective, it's it was a long-standing story. Mm-hmm. It's the longest story for us, as a matter of fact. So, however difficult it was, uh, we knew of this situation for a long time. Uh, a lot of witnesses to the TRC told us stories, their own personal stories, including myself and how we by accident found uh, my little brother after 40 years of not knowing where he was, where he was buried, uh, what happened. As you know, there's no other death certificates for for these kids. That type of stuff uh, came up again for many of us survivors and especially my family. So mm-hmm. it was a rather difficult uh, summer for all of us, uh, the surviving uh, survivors to this day in my family. But unfortunately, even with all the promises and words that have been expressed by the federal government and Prime Minister Trudeau in particular, there was a 13 million year mark, for instance, to to help communities. And again, recently, Trudeau re-promised again in early December to the Chiefs and Assembly of DAFM um, that there would be a special interlocutor uh, that will be appointed. Trudeau said that uh, we will ensure that the communities undertaking burial searches have what they need. Mm. 
well, if we're going to provide communities with what they need to do these searches, and this technology is very expensive, the 13 million that was earmarked to do this is just a mere drop in the bucket, in my view, that we have to increase that money in order for those communities to have closure and to heal. I mean, we have three generations of Indigenous guests on, on the show today. And, and Riley, you're the youngest. What stood out to you over this year? Like, were you surprised by by anything? You know, what what, what are you thinking um, as you look ahead to how we we go about, you know, identifying these graves and, and doing the work of reconciliation that really needs to be done? I should preface, I guess, and say I was born in 1999, so I am of the the only generation in this country that has certifiably never been to a residential school, um, and it's wild for me to think about like that how how young I am on this panel <laughs> in every space and and you know what that means. My um, grandparents attended um, Shingwalk Residential School, and like they have never been able to talk about it with me at all or anyone, as far as I know. The same thing with all of their siblings. It's stories you know through being in community, but like when the news was coming out and, and folks were talking about this consistently, right? Like there's like such a profound amount of grief. These are stories that like are so horrible, so whatever, and the ways that they affected my my grandparents in ways that they, you know, they can't even speak about it. And I saw my aunts and my uncles talking, they posted on Facebook and they were like, I'm so glad everybody's talking about this. Like, I am a survivor. And it was the first time I had ever heard from any of them in their own words, like even acknowledging the fact that they attended a residential school. So like interpersonally, it was extremely like profound and heavy um, and is still something that like, I feel like we're all reeling from. And then, you know, with that in mind, which is like a full-time, you know, job to really work through and to sit with, there was also just having to observe the way Canada dealt with that news um, and the way that it quickly became like this really politicized bargaining chip for like a lot of parties, um, a virtue signaling thing for a lot of folks. And it's especially frustrating because when we're talking about when should we stop wearing our orange shirts and when do the flags go down is like what the conversation became. Meanwhile, I'm living in Thunder Bay, Ontario, where there is an active continuation of the residential school. Like, never mind the child welfare system, which we often talk about as being a continuation of the residential school. Like, kids actively being forced to leave their communities to come to Thunder Bay, where they die at the hands of white folks and within, like, the Canadian institutions to get an education. So, like, none of that, though, being talked about how Canada could address some of these ongoing legacies. It, like, was so frustrating uh, and continues to be very frustrating to watch how people think we should grapple with this. Lena, were you surprised by just the sheer amount of conversation that this started and just the way it was it was unfolding? I was actually quite surprised because this same conversation didn't hit when the TRC came out. Prior to that, I've been working at news organizations and had always had uh, the conversation in the newsrooms that this wasn't genocide. There's no proof. There's no bodies. You can't report that these things are. Uh, are, are true and factual. You can't talk about them being survivors because there's no proof of death. So just having to deal with that in my, my young journalism years um, is always, um, yeah, it was always sort of uh, brushed to the side as this sort of myth, you know. And so it's a, an awakening of the public in the public sphere 
But I think the TRC sort of primed people to kind of for this conversation. I just don't think they had it had actually hit them or people had actually dug into what the TRC had said. And so it's this slow um, reveal. And I guess people really finally were at home during COVID, during lockdown, reading, listening to news in a way I think that they're engaging in um, a deeper way and sort of it's sinking in. I mean, I was looking at polls about people not being shocked, and I was actually surprised to see that there are people who are quite familiar with the story, you know, and a lot of people knew a little bit about residential school, but the amount of people who didn't know anything had gone down to like 20% of the, the population, which I think that's that's the most people knowing about residential school and what has happened there than has been prior. I think, um, at least for my part, uh, if the Canadian public didn't bother reading at least a summary of the TRC report, uh, so obviously they didn't, they didn't know about that. My thoughts were with the families and communities that lost children, that had children never to return home, and, and especially in this uh, so-called era of reconciliation in this country, we're supposed to know these things by now. Um, but uh, I thought about the communities as well because I know for a fact that many communities will choose different paths uh, towards uh, uh, towards the, in this early healing journey. And there are different examples across across the country how different communities dealt with former residential schools structures. You know, uh, I can point to an example in BC, the, the St. Eugene uh, Mission Residential School uh, near Cranbrook. They turned that uh, residential school into hotel resort uh, that I visited. And other communities will, uh, will choose another path to close that chapter, terrible chapter in their lives. For instance, well, when we finally found my little brother, Johnish, uh, 40 years after, he had uh, disappeared. We finally found him, uh, the body. And in her dying days, uh, just about three years ago now, I asked my mom if she wished uh, we repatriate the remains of, uh, of Johnish to his traditional territory in northern Quebec. And she said to me at that moment, she said, uh, no, don't bother, because I'll see him again anyway. Mm. You know, so different people will choose the way they want to deal with this. Different communities will choose different different paths. And um, our, my minds and, and my mind and thought thoughts were uh, with these people all along. And uh, the solutions being proposed right now with this special interlocutor is one one avenue. Mm. Uh, we've, we've yet to see the mandate of this. Uh, uh, and the terms of reference of this special interlocutor, while the AFN national chief had asked for uh, um, an arm, arm's length independent UN investigation into this, which is probably the most reasonable thing to do as, as well in my mind. But uh, here we are in this era of reconciliation. We have a, a federal government that is still fighting indigenous children in court, uh, that is still fighting residential school survivors, in particular St. Anne's in court, uh, that are still hiding uh, residential school records or uh, failing to 
give them over to the Truth and Reconciliation Center. Uh, so I'm not sure if, if all of this is uh, conducive of uh, reconciliation, frankly. Well, it's interesting you talk about the interlocutor, right? Lena, you've spoken to a lot of people in the last several months for your documentary. I'm curious to hear what you're hearing about what people want. I would like to get back to the interlocutor versus repertoire eventually at, at, at some point um, with Romeo. But what we're hearing is that the people don't want the same things, um, especially when I was um, in the community of Tecum Loops. There are people who are deeply spiritual and deeply religious and don't think that there should be a, you know, sort of a digging up the graves and sort of uh, doing the DNA testing and they kind of want to leave them be. And then there are people who definitely want to go towards the criminal charges and, and would like to know if it's their family and are are, are willing to go, go forward and have their DNA tested. So there's sort of a argument against excavation and, and for excavation. And I think these communities are still grappling uh, heavily with uh, what it means to them in a, in a spiritual sense and an, and, um, an investigative sense. So um, there's not one uh, true answer that everybody holds here. Mm-hmm. Acknowledging that my expertise like, is basic, virtually zero around like the actual uh, best practices that have been used for like situations like this, like mass graves and excavations. We have to talk about like, what are we going to do about these graves? Certainly, but like, we can't do just that and then not address the just swath of inequities that are just baked into every single part of this country, right? I think it's also important that we use this as like a moment to like really reflect on how much work there is to do and how much better people have to be about this. So like the things I've been doing right now, like my research right now is looking at like just the original TRC document at the beginning and doing like a textual analysis of the way that survivors articulated their visions of reconciliation and then the way that Canada responded to that, where the commission used firm words, phrases like atonement, action, political will, substantial investment. The Canadian government used words and phrases with like much more abstract connotations, such as acknowledge, promote awareness, support commemoration, like perhaps most compellingly, right, where the TRC produced calls to action, the government requested recommendations. There was never supposed to be anything, you know, like binding and the will behind um, the will behind it that it required from the onset. And I think we're still struggling to like get to that place. Um, and so how do I make Canada have the will to like address, you know, it's just fundamental inequities. I'm still unsure about that. But I do think that that definitely comes um, from our communities ourselves. Like the reason why this was the biggest story of the year and, you know, of, I think, the decade and why we're talking about it right now is not because, uh, you know, Justin Trudeau made it so. It's because our communities for generations, you know, would not let these stories die and would not let the public, you know, forget about them. And so the I think that has to be then the only way forward. I mean, Lena, in conversations, you've described this issue not as a political one, but as a criminality issue. Yeah. In most cases and areas, people really want to get down to the reasons why the children have died. I mean, a lot of people have been, you know, there's a a substantial amount of people who um, point to the TRC and say, well, a lot of these kids were, you know, exposed to tuberculosis and um, had disease and were in overcrowding situations. But a lot of those determinants of, of why they died was it's actually solely um, rests on the 
uh, Catholic Church as well as the federal government, like both of them uh, colluded together to have residential schools happen and and for people to, to pass away. So whether it was through the mal- malnutrition, which was forced upon the children, which people would, parents would go to jail indefinitely if their kids are, uh, died from malnutrition, um, there's people not being sort of held accountable in this way. So they need to find out, a lot of people want to find out why and how the children died. Of course, there's many first eyewitness test testimony to, to children dying under the TRC. But, you know, the community I was working with wants to, to pursue criminal charges and wants people to be held account. Those who are living right now who are responsible for those children's deaths should be held accountable. Mm. And it's something that we've, you know, avoided talking about. And we the government keeps avoiding talking about this. I totally concur with uh, what has just been said, having witnessed a lot of this stuff in my 10 years in residential school. Yes, this first and foremost should be uh, criminal investigations because that's what happened. I still recall how, I won't name the, uh, the kid, how was he was thrown uh, from the third floor and totally crushed uh, upon landing. I don't know if you ever heard what it sounds like when a per- person falls first on its head directly. It's a terrible sound that I can still hear here today. So yeah, that would be my preferred move that as a person from uh, with a legal background. But uh, I've watched this government since 2015. I was reelected in 2015, and in the in the beautiful uh, words and promises that uh, uh, that uh, Justin Trudeau made in December 2015. As a matter of fact, uh, one of his first speeches. Uh, to the AFN was in December of 15, after, shortly after his election in October. One of the things he promised back then was uh, that the federal government would rescind all of the laws that were unilaterally imposed on Indigenous peoples by governments. We will conduct a full review of the legislation unilaterally imposed on Indigenous peoples by the previous government. where measures are found to be in conflict with your rights, where they are inconsistent with the principles of good governance, or where they simply make no public policy sense. We will rescind them. And I know know just the Minister of Justice to keep an eye on that. I clearly hear the words again, and, I, I'm, uh, and I'm quoting them by, by, by heart here. I was sitting in the back room, I said, oh, great, let's start with the Indian Act then, you know, because it's, it still remains uh, uh, troublesome to have uh, such a legislation in, in a country called Canada in 2022. A lot of people tell me, every time I, I meet people in the streets or in meetings, uh, well, you know, Roman reconciliation takes time. Well, that's a misunderstanding and a misread of what the Supreme Court said in 2004 in the Haida Nation case. Supreme Court talked about reconciliation in 2004. And uh, Supreme Court said two things about reconciliation. One, uh, that reconciliation is a process and not an end in itself, which basically means that every action that you want to take legislatively, politically, or otherwise, uh, you need to think about, is this conducive to reconciliation? 
every single act that you make, whether you're municipal, provincial, or federal government. That's what the Supreme Court meant. The second thing the Supreme Court said in that same case in 2004 was that the objective is to reconcile the pre-existing sovereignty of indigenous peoples with the assumed sovereignty of the crown. Mm. It's quite a challenge. That's quite a challenge. And, and I think uh, uh, we have a long ways to go if people don't understand what, what reconciliation means in all of this, unfortunately. Yeah, I was just going to jump in because I'm like, like everything you're saying is like sparking off things <laughs> in my brain, right? People have said the same thing to me again and again, like reconciliation is something that takes so much time, like whatever, blah, blah, blah. And like, I, it's so funny when you see um, uh, the Yellowhead Institute, for example, they did an analysis of like, at this rate, um, completing um, the TRC calls to action, which by the way, like, of course, like if you read them, are, should just be baseline expectations, right? Like they're not even anything like, you know, getting into this like huge conversation of reparations. Those are just like bringing us up to like a status of basic healing. They're not supposed to be finished at this rate until like 2073 when I'll be like 80 years old you know, like an entire generation, all our survivors will be gone. Um, and so like, I just don't have time for Canada's uh, pace of this, you know, like, I think it's an, a huge excuse. It's not in line at, with at all with what the survivors originally intended this, I think, process to look like. And then the other thing about it that Romeo is saying that is like really sticking with me is like, yeah, the conversations about criminality and justice, and it's re- making me reflect on some of my um time working with cases of of murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls. I think a lot of the principles from the MMIWG report are also applicable in these cases, you know, like harsher sentencing when it comes to crimes perpetrated against Indigenous women. I think like that should also stand for like crimes that happen against Indigenous children, (laughs) you know, just even no matter how many years pass. But the other thing that, you know, um, and I was heavily involved with a woman named Barbara Kentner's case, her murderer did end up serving jail time. He was sentenced um, to a really um, high amount of time under a manslaughter conviction. Um, And I just remember the feeling when, you know, he was sentenced and how hollow it still felt and how it was very hard to call anything that happened to Barbara and to her family justice. Even that he got a guilty verdict, like there was no, there's no recourse for her family. There's no change to the system um, that made this a multi-year battle that put them through trauma day in, day out. Um, there was no changes, structural changes to Thunder Bay that, you know, addressed the racism that allowed her to be murdered in the first place. Um, and so I think, again, um, to like an earlier point about how this is about um, these children and it's about residential schools and it's about these graves, but it's also about having like, I think a really confrontational conversation about like, what do things like justice actually look like? And what what could it look like as opposed to the necessary baselines of like, yes, we should be pursuing criminal charges um, and to be more fulsome. So Lena, do we think this interlocutor role will will maybe start addressing some of the structural nuances of, of the multiple issues at hand? I think the interlocutor position is sort of almost replacing the UN Rapporteur. Canada kind of really wants to show that they're um, compliant and agreeing with the, crim- the the investigations right now, if they're criminal or not, to see where the graves are and how these children died, whether it was intentional, uh, purposeful, or uh, disease 
they have their hands really tied, actually. So um, according to the Globe Mail article, they, they received some information. They're saying that basically the interlocutor is not allowed to interview anybody, not allowed to talk to potential witnesses or victims, not allowed to collect original documents at all or seize physical evidence, and all these powers that can kind of um, inform the criminal cases in the future. So it's really a bridge role that is sort of being there in order to sort of communicate to First Nations uh, and the government about what's happening and sort of... Um, it just it's a communications position in a lot of senses. So um, where the the rapporteur would be somebody who would actually have to uh, hold to account to report to the UN, and this is more of Romeo's expertise um, and working with rapporteurs in the past. Um, but that would sort of bring up to an international level, and this interlocutor is is very um, internal. I guess like there's, I always get stuck here because it seems like the roadmap is laid out and no one's willing to walk on it. <laughs> that's what i was thinking uh, <laughs> uh, because you know uh, the solutions have been proposed through many commissions uh, committee reports uh, royal commission 96 uh, trc now the national inquiry so if you combine all of these uh, recommendations call to action call for justice i mean the roadmap is there what's lacking and what continues uh, to lack as we speak in 2022, is the political will to do so. So it's a choice. Governing is a choice. Uh, you either choose reconciliation or you choose the, the path that you've been following as a, uh, as a colonial government all along. The TRC, I, I think it's call to action 46, has called for a reset of our relations. The number one item on the agenda between peoples is their relations. And our relations with um, the governments in this country have not been working and all these commissions and uh, have called that, uh, for, have called for change. And we're still not going in that direction. I think the only positive change somewhat that was made by this government uh, in, uh, since uh, 2015 has, the, has been the adoption of, the, of C-15 the law on the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. In fact, Bill C-15 only confirms something that already existed legally um, in the different legal frameworks that we have internationally and nationally in Indigenous law and so on, uh, uh, that the UN Declaration already had application in cleaning law mm -hmm. since its adoption by the General Assembly in 2007. Bill C-15 merely confirms that it has application in Canadian law. In fact, the Supreme Court back in 1987 said, uh, it was, I believe, the former Chief Justice Dixon who said that all these international instruments that we have, and he names them, declarations, covenants, conventions, international treaties, international decisions, and quasi-judicial decisions are all relevant and persuasive sources to interpret domestic law. And that's what should be happening all along. One of the fascinating things to watch in, in 2021 um, surrounding the discoveries was just the way the public responded, right? There's a lot of anecdotal um, stories I'm sure everybody on the panel can tell where people have uh, approached them or reached out to them. Um, and said, you know, things like, I'm sorry, or I had no clue, and we're sorry we didn't know. 
especially when I was in, in the community hanging out with people from to come loops, there was a regular approach to people from to come loops, which is also really hard to see like people <laughs> approaching everywhere at any situation. But there's a desire to reach out and say like, I didn't know, we didn't realize, or we're sorry for, for this happening as individuals in Canada, which I thought that was going to happen, you know, after the TRC or after the the report finally on murder and missing women. And it was intense and it's overwhelming, but it is it's reassuring to me that most people, I'd say the majority, it's it's um, especially with the poll we're looking at, know about residential school and agree the policies were genocidal in intention. And yeah, it was just a huge shift to see candidate be taken over by people who are, you know, marching and um, out in allyship uh, to go against Canada, not the, for this sort of uh, nationalistic um, nationalistic and uh, superficial attachment to Canada. They, they decided to forego it in order to, to be allies and, and to walk out and be supportive of the communities. And that's never happened for me. So, and I, I don't think it's, it's happened for, you know, a lot of those people who have survived. Um, and, you know, now those who are deceased don't get to see that shift. Riley, do you see it as a turning point? I mean, I hope so. I think, like, um, that's a choice that Canadians still um, have to make. And I think that they have every now, like, every motivation to. They should have, you know, the beginnings and and entrances into this conversation um, to be able to make that choice. Like, I I love what Lena was saying because you made me reflect on my time on what is Canada today. And I think about, you know, how many years ago it was just Canada 150 and how much, like, crap Indigenous people got across the country for protesting Canada 150. And now just these handful of years later that I too, you know, was like in, um, on Canada Day with a whole bunch of folks, like, showing up wearing their orange and like not a like red and white flag in sight and like what a transformative moment that felt like the thing that I'm noticing and I I have a lot of uh, conversations with my non-indigenous friends about is that I think like Canadians are right now going through a moment and like a reckoning and like dealing with profound grief that like Indigenous people have been working through for generations. They've been sold this house of lies and how identity shaking um, that is for folks. And now the choice comes, like, what are we going to rebuild instead? And luckily for Canadians, um, Indigenous people have always been telling us what we want that to be. And through those reports, through, um, you know, our, our conversations, our visions for the future, Indigenous people always intended, um, you know, from my teachings, like to be able to live alongside non-Indigenous people. And we have like real protocols and, and actionable ways to make that happen. I just think that sometimes it's hard because colonialism, amongst its many terrible effects, really um, stunts the imagination, I think. I think that um, it makes it really hard for people to imagine a future that doesn't include domination um, and hierarchy and one government ahead of another, even though our people would know that that doesn't have to be so. And so I just hope that, you know, Canadians can pursue that path. And I think that they have every resource to be able to. Romeo, last word to you. Oh. <laughs> as are you surprised? <laughs> as as we're looking ahead, um, do you see real meaningful change coming in 2022 after everything that that happened in in 2021 and and before and all the all the things that the government seems to be saying that it's putting in place? 
Well, that, that, that's a good question. And after the election in 2015 of this present government, uh, I was a bit hopeful. I listened to that speech that Trudeau gave to the chiefs in, in assembly in December 2015. And I walked out of there and I said to myself, well, maybe there's a chance of change. But what I was seeing as, as this government uh, went along was pretty exasperating. Uh, to the point I had to say a bad word in Parliament at one point. They have decided to willfully violate their constitutional duties and obligations. Mr. Minister, Mr. Speaker, sounds like a most important relationship, doesn't it? Why doesn't the Prime Minister just say the truth and tell the Indigenous peoples that he doesn't give a fuck about their rights? I was so exasperated by seeing this talk and no action at all. Uh, but over the years, I can, I can say this. I've been in this business for 40 years. I started working with Billy Diamond, late Billy Diamond, the first Grand Chief of the Grand Council of the Cree of Northern Quebec, 1981. And, um, and over the years, I've noticed how this clinging to the status quo is so fierce by all levels of government that change will only come slowly. And my big, biggest regret, uh, I can say, after 40 years uh, in this business, and I'm trying to walk away from it slowly, but people are holding on to me, <laughs> to, uh, including yourself, by the way. <laughs> but, I have no but, regrets. <laughs> but my, my only regret after 40 years is that I noticed that I'm still fighting and debating things that I was fighting for and debating 40 years ago. And, and if and I regret that this is the legacy that I'm leaving my children with. They're going to have to fight the same battles as I did uh, from here on. But then again, I, I thought about uh, that one day after saying it to an audience, this is the legacy I'm leaving and I regret it. But I thought about it after walking out from that interview and said to myself, well, at least I may have taught them to stand up for their rights. And it's prob that's probably the legacy I'll leave to my children. I really don't understand how to speed up the, the Canadian system around this stuff. Like, not, not that I'm saying executive orders have to be done like Trump did, like, you know, 70 to 90 different orders a day. But how, like, at least they sped up a system, a terrible system of going a in a different direction. But I don't, I don't understand how Canada sort of speeds these things up and, and becomes more flexible you know in the canadian legal system the only special uh, interlocutor that exists in in canadian law is the one provided for in the canadian defense act national defense act uh, so there's there's no other position provided under law in canada so uh, they're going to have to create it that's why i spoke about um, the mandate and the terms of reference for this person that's going to be named to, to this position. Uh, and that's that's the important part. Uh, to what extent is, is uh, the Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada uh, able to, to uh, create this position and what, it, what are the limits of the mandate of this position uh, are the, is the kind of stuff that will be, that is provided for under the um, uh, Department of Justice Act. Um, which is a pretty, he has a flexibility there, uh, a bit of a flexibility. So um, again, 
they promised uh, the uh, C-15 uh, uh, the act on the UN declaration back in 2015. They only managed to get get it through uh, uh, just recently. So how soon is this going to come? I'm not sure. And unfortunately, for another two, two and a half years, I cannot lobby the federal government under the <laughs> existing uh, lobbying act, uh, the federal lobbying act. So uh, I'm not allowed to, to even talk to them. But uh, I think the important thing to look for here is the, when they're going to do it and uh, demanding in terms of reference of uh, this person is going to be very important. That is where you will see if this will lead to uh, criminal charges. On that note, let's adjourn. That was the Backbench's first episode of 2022. We'll talk again in two weeks. And if you're following along what happens in Ottawa, let us know what you're watching closely, what you'd like to hear us discuss, what you're concerned about, what you want to understand better. Send us your questions, your concerns, your rants. Our email is backbench at candleland.com. We're also on Twitter at backbenchcast. I'm Fatma Sayed, and you can find me on Twitter at Fatma B. Sayed. I want to make sure people can follow your work. So, Lena, tell everyone about the documentary you're working on and where people can find it. Yeah, so the documentary I'm working on is for CBC Fifth Estate. It's going to be coming out in uh, early 2022. And uh, you can take a look for it on CBC. Um, and thank you guys for having me. You can follow me on Twitter uh, and Instagram at Lena. Riley, where are you? Yeah, so I'm also on Twitter. Um, I post my work there um, almost always after it's published. That's at Riley, yes, no, maybe. Um, I am also have a website where all my stuff is archived, and that's just RileyYesNo.com. And Romeo, I know you're not retired, so where do people follow your work? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'm, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at, at Romeo Saganash in both, both cases. I've uh, been doing a lot of writing uh, over the past uh, year and a half now, uh, so there should be interesting stuff coming out uh, soon, I hope. Both in French and English, by the way. <laughs> I'm very much looking forward to it. Thank you so much. Seriously, I'm so grateful to you three. This episode was produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Tristan Capacione. Our managing editor is Kieran Aldshorn. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. Thank you for listening and see you soon. Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.